Welcome back to Better Than I Found It, the podcast, All Things College Golf. You're listening to Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor. Today's guest has been a friend of mine for a long, long time and is considered by many as one of the most dominant players to ever play at Oklahoma State. His name is Lindy Miller, and he not only won 11 times in college, was also the low amateur at both the U.S. Open and the Masters while in college, along with being a member of the U.S. Walker Cup team. Lindy went on to play the PGA Tour for five years before starting a long and successful career as a club professional in his hometown of Fort Worth, Texas. As a youngster, Lindy had the distinction of being a regular ball shagger for Ben Hogan, and those stories are gold. He also shares memories of college teammates, national championships they won, and other interesting tidbits. Lindy is truly one of the good guys, so I'm certain you'll enjoy this episode. Welcome back to another episode of Better Than I Found It. My guest today is former Oklahoma State Golf All-American, Lindy Miller. Lindy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. You know, um, this is big for me in a, a couple of reasons. One, when I was a junior golfer, I really looked up to you. And then when I, you were in college at Oklahoma State, I obviously looked up to you as a player. Uh, but your connection with Ben Hogan is another reason that that I really have been looking forward to this podcast because I know you have some very interesting stories about your time shagging for Ben Hogan and just being around the man. Um, and anybody that knows me knows I'm a, a big Ben Hogan fan. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Um, you're, you're one of the few guys hanging around that did a lot of shagging for Ben. Uh, yes, I was very fortunate. Uh, we joined Shady Oaks when I was probably 14 years old and, and, uh, they kind of saw some some promise in me, even though I think when I was 13 or 14, I was an 18 handicapper. But they saw oh, wait, some wait, promise. Wait, 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 what? Yeah, yeah. When I was like 13, I was an 18. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, that's – if I could go back in time, I would play Lindy Miller as a 13-year-old because I know I had a, a 10 or 11 <laughs> handicap at the time. <laughs> but it got better quick, pretty quick, though. I bet it did. But uh, they saw some promise there, and I was hanging out uh, at the club all the time, even though uh, I wasn't working there at the time. But they allowed me, as a member, to work in the bag room and, uh, and then also shag for Mr. Hogan, which was, you know, just a, a great opportunity for me. Uh, and I think I told uh, your Baylor guys when, when y'all were at Shady Oaks a couple of weeks ago, it made a huge impact on the type of player that I was just being around him. You know, we didn't sit, sit down and at the big table back in the 19th hole and talk about golf swing or anything like that when I was 14 or 15, but just being around him and, and riding out to the little nine uh, to where he would hit balls every day and then shagging the balls for him and watching how he practiced, how he did things. And it was incredible. And like I told you guys the other day, Nobody believes it because it's so good. It's, it's, it's just scary, but you never moved uh, when, when he hit balls and he would start out, you'd pour the balls out wherever he pointed to the ground and mm -hmm. you'd pour the balls out and uh, he would just start with three or four, maybe 60 yard shots as you ran out to that spot. And then he would just work his way all the way through the bag, wedge nine, eight, seven, you'd back up probably 10 yards each time that he went to his bag to get a new club. 
and you just basically never moved. And I probably shagged for him 10 or 12 times. And the farthest I moved off the bag was maybe, maybe 10 to 12 yards one way or another. And that might've been with a driver. So there's a 24 yard wide fairway that he never missed basically. And in, in all the times that I shagged for him. Well, you know, I appreciate you saying that most people think, that all the Ben Hogan stories that are told through the years are just filled with hyperbole, like just gross exaggeration. And it would sound like that when people say it, like you, you tell the story never more than 10 or 12 yards off with a driver. How could this be, especially with persimmon woods and a ballada golf ball and any wind blowing at all? I don't think the kids realize how good a ball striker he was and they don't even know it. it that's unbelievable, actually. And when you think about it, it really is. And, and if I hadn't have lived it, I, I, I probably wouldn't believe it either. And uh, actually, this, this one day, uh, I wasn't shagging, but a good friend of mine, uh, Randy Jacobs, that uh, I went to high school with and played at Arlington Heights with, was shagging for him. And Mr. Hogan went through his whole routine, all the clubs, driver, and then he would wave you in when he decided it was enough, basically. And he would hit to one of the greens on the uh, little nine. He might hit three or four little wedges, probably 60-yard wedges, maybe five of them. But as Randy was running back to that green uh, from where he was hitting drivers, he had already hit five balls. And Randy tells the story great because he lived it too. And that – shot 60 or 70 yards by the time randy had gotten there he had made two of them two of them were like a foot and one of them was like three foot from the hole and uh he told mr hogan that when he got back and he just kind of shrugged of you know this that's that's the way it's supposed to happen <laughs> what well, you know this it he was so accurate some people uh, said, well, how come you didn't just hole out every shot? He said, you don't want to hit the flag stick. It can go off the green if you hit the flag stick. You got to aim away from the flag a little bit. Yeah, and you wouldn't even think there's any truth to that other than <laughs> there may have been truth to that. I mean, it's just, it was, it was uncanny. And uh, I would also caddy for him uh, nine holes. He would hit three balls, and it was like the easiest nine holes ever. I mean – you know, I've tried to play worse ball and things like that with three balls, and it's a it's a chore. But, Mr. Hogan, you could do worse ball with three balls, and you would never walk anywhere but down the middle of the fairway and right to the green into the next hole. I mean, it was amazing. But uh, that was fun to watch that, too, and how he went through uh, routines and, and things like that on the golf course. And you think about a 14 or 15-year-old being out there with Ben Hogan, just you two, and playing nine holes and being right there with him, that's a, that's a pretty fortunate deal for me. Well, I'm glad you said that because that leads to my next question. You know, young players constantly, they always ask me as a college coach, and, oh, you've coached these All-Americans, or you guys guys have been on the tour. I mean, what did you learn? I mean, how do I, how do I learn from these players? So it's obvious you had some pretty keen observational skills and you may not even have known at the time, but talk about how you, what you saw actually translated into how you became a player. I mean, what did you glean from that? How did you get better because you watched a great player? Well, I don't know that I 
recognized what I was seeing, but uh, I think just the demeanor and and how he went about preparing to hit each shot, not so much the swing, you know, 14 or 15. And, and I was a very natural player anyway, and not a lot of technique. So there really wasn't a lot of technique involved, but I just watched how he thought, how he kept the same demeanor all the way through each shot uh, that he played, you know, whether it was, from 150 yards or a putt or whatever it was, he was so even keeled. And I do think that helped me a lot um, to kind of get ahead of, of uh, kids my age, 14, 15, 16, that would have, you know, basically a tumultuous birdie, bogey, birdie, bogey, and their emotions would go up and down, you know, left and right. And I really think that helped me too. Now, he wasn't hitting bad shots. It wasn't like he was hitting <laughs> shots at a bunker, and he had to stay even keel. But I was really watching, I think, more than anything, how he stayed even keeled all the way through every shot for those nine holes or, or whenever he was hitting shots and playing golf. I don't think people really realize that you were seeing him basically in his late 50s. So he was well past his prime. He was an older man, but – arguably still one of the best ball strikers in the world is putting had left him at that point, but he truly was still at that age, the best ball striker in the world. I mean, well, it's, it's the best I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, I played with Jack and I played with, with, uh, Trevino Trevino would be the second best in my opinion that, that I was ever around, but Mr. Hogan, and I know it was, you know, later on, like you say, late fifties, maybe even 60 years old. And, uh, uh, he is the best with Trevino being, I guess, maybe a close second, but maybe not a close second. But, uh, you know, Lee had control of his ball, his flight uh, trajectories like no other that I'd ever seen other than Ben Hogan. Well, you know, people always ask me the question, uh, you know, you're such a traditionalist, Ben Hogan being your favorite player as a kid he would turn over in his grave if he saw these people using track man. And I said, well, I don't really think so. He was a human track man for one, but I also think he would have used it if he thought it would give him an advantage. Don't you, I mean, what, what do you think about Hogan and a track man? There is no question. He would love the technology of today. Now he was so far ahead, his mind of thinking about things like that, Gene Sheely, who was the master club designer at uh, the Ben Hogan Company, he and Mr. Hogan were very close. And uh, Gene would make machines, design machines that would, you know, tell, you know, Mr. Hogan what he was looking for. And on this particular instance, um, Mr. Hogan wanted to look at his trajectories. Now, this is like track man before track man. But Gene came up with idea and they did it at Shady Oaks one day. He got two weather balloons and he sent one up and I don't know exactly, you know, how high it's going to be, but say it went up a hundred feet and then he got another weather balloon and it went up, you know, one ten, and he would hit balls between those two balloons without hitting them to make wow. sure his trajectories were the same. And then when he changed clubs, the lower balloon might go up 
higher and the higher bloom might go up higher if it was a shorter iron or whatever. And he would just go ahead and hit balls through those balloons. And so that was kind of track man before the numbers uh, in the, in the technology would allow those numbers to, to be displayed on a screen. And he was doing that. Okay. So let's say he had the idea that this would someday come about. He didn't understand the technology or any of that, how it would be. But what do you think about the way Hogan owned what he did? He didn't take golf lessons. Admittedly, he probably took a golf lesson from, uh, from Henry Picard, who was somebody he dedicated his first book to. But other than that, he never took golf lessons. So, and I'm not proposing or a proponent that you should do no instruction. That's not it at all. I realize instruction is a very valuable part of it. What do you think Hogan today would give advice to kids when they all come to him and say, you know what, I just saw my instructor last week and he told me this, this, and this. What would Hogan's advice be to a young 14-year-old about how you take instruction? What do you do? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a guess, obviously, but uh, I think he would say listen to him, but uh, uh, like you say, own it. Go with your own gut and, and figure it out on your own. Uh, and I think, and, and I haven't talked to Victor about this, but I did read an article about him, but I think that's kind of what Victor has done, uh, Victor Hovland. And he went through a lot of, a lot of different uh, uh, people that he talked to about the golf swing, and then he just kind of figured out what was best on his own. And, and I, think, I think guys back when Mr. Hogan played talked about the golf swing, and I think he probably took a lot of that to heart, but then some of it didn't work for him and some did. And he ended up owning, you know, what he thought worked for him. And I, I think, you know, the today's players, if, because they get so reliant and, and not everybody, but, you know, so many people get so reliant on that uh, instructor, it's hard for them to make adjustments when they're out on the golf course and, and things like that. And, and if they kind of own their own swing, maybe, um, experiment with different types of swings, different types of swing thoughts, it may help them in the long run of being able to, you know, hit the shot that they need to, or if they get into a slump, get out of the slump, but they understand the swing more themselves instead of having to go immediately and you know get that help from somebody else and I think that's what he did because he experimented with a lot of things and and that could have been from a lot of different people that he had talked to about the swing that he may have never mentioned but he just discarded a lot of that stuff and I think like I say I think Victor Hopland's done a lot of that too he, he discarded a lot but then he got to where he found the right thing for him and obviously it's working it is working very well that guy plays good almost every single week and man he's just got such a great personality love victor hovland so i learned something already from you that you were not a very good player at 13 nope. I just imagine growing up watching you play and knowing your record that me must have been good from day one great to hear that you were not a good player at 13 that's awesome <laughs> um but the question is, and this is the question I've never asked you and always wanted to, and we're going to get it out today, and that is, how in the world 
did Mike Holder in his second recruiting class at Oklahoma State get Lindy Miller to come from Fort Worth north to Stillwater? Now, I'm going to compare this to Mike Holder getting Scott Verplank, whose entire family went to the University of Texas for 100 years right. to, to Stillwater, and Pablo Martin coming from Malaga, Spain to Stillwater. Nobody thought either of those two things could happen, but nobody ever talks about how did he get Lindy Miller to Stillwater? That must be amazing. Well, good question. And, uh, you know, back then, I, I just always expected to go to Texas. You know, I admired Ben Crenshaw growing up, all the, the records that he had here in, in the state. And uh, I was always, you know, trying to catch him. He'd shoot 20 under in the state junior to win. I shot 18 under. I didn't get there. So I was always watching him. And even though he was six or seven years older, you know, they were winning national championships at Texas. Um, he was winning individual championship freshman year, sophomore year. And that's who I wanted or who kind of I aspired and admired and wanted to become a player like, like uh, Ben Crenshaw and, we actually had some mutual friends at Shady Oaks that uh, Ben stayed with when uh, he was up here at Colonial. So I played with him at Shady Oaks, got to know him. And it was, that was really what uh, I had expected to do is just go to Texas. And, you know, I had a lot of offers uh, and, and this was Southwest conference down here. I didn't even really know that much about the big eight. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I knew about Oklahoma and Nebraska football, but uh this was Southwest Conference, and, you know, you had Texas and you had Houston. So I had offers from all those schools, uh, also USC, Florida, Georgia, uh, Wake Forest, uh, offered the Arnold Palmer Scholarship, and, and really that was just too far. I didn't want to get too far from home. But uh, Coach Holder called, and actually, and you may not know this, but Art Hall, who was uh, mm -hmm. uh, the pro there at Shady Oaks, uh, he went to Oklahoma State. Yes, I knew uh, Art. He grew, he grew up in Tulsa and won the state junior and then went to Oklahoma State. He didn't say anything about uh, me going there. Once I kind of got through, you know, my sophomore, junior year and people were starting to look at me. And it, it's interesting, but all of this happened. Uh, the recruiting was so much later now or back then than it is now. Uh, all this was happening kind of fall of my senior year and then spring of my senior year. So I hadn't decided where I was going to go until, until then, but uh, coach Holder got, got in touch with art. Um, and the guys stopped on their way to the border Olympics. They were driving from Stillwater to Laredo and they stopped at Shady Oaks and played. So I kind of met everybody and there were a lot of um, Tom Jones um, who just kept beating me at the Texas Oklahoma junior. He beat me two years in a row. I finished second. He finally got old enough uh, to where he would go to school. And I, I was able to win uh, that year after he, he started at OSU, but he was on the team. So I knew him, but that's really all I knew about uh, the school up there Houston. You know, Dave Williams would call every Sunday night and 
we'd talk and he just, he just knew I was coming to Houston. I had a real good friend, Robert Hoyt, that I went to high school with and he moved to Houston his senior year of high school, one to state high school, but we're still very good friends. And, and, uh, so coach Williams just figured I was a done deal for Houston and a, a good story. Uh, Coach and I, Coach Holder and I laugh about this now, but at the NCAA at Stillwater Country Club, Coach Harris's last year when they had picked Coach Holder to be uh, his successor, he was out at Stillwater Country Club and he was talking to Dave Williams and he says it was right. He can remember to this day, they were right there on the putting green and, and he asked Dave, he said, you know, is there anybody in Texas that uh, is a good player coming up? And he, he had came right out and said, is this Lindy Miller any good? And Dave Williams said, nah, you don't need to worry about him. He's coming <laughs> to Houston. So we, we still laugh about that. But Funny. I went to Texas, you know, the visit, I just went down by myself, stayed with, with the players. You know, Coach Hannon probably didn't do a great job on the recruiting side but it, there was a plan there anyway. It was going to work out the way it was supposed to work out. But in Houston, I went down a couple of times, but uh, Coach Holder said, I want you to come to Stillwater last after you visit everybody else. So we did that. He had my parents go, which meant a lot to me. He flew us. I mean, even though it's a short drive, he flew us from Dallas to Oklahoma City he picked us up in Oklahoma City, drove to Stillwater. We stayed at Student Union. We met everybody at the business school, president of the university, everything, red carpet, did it the way, you know, he knows how and the way it's that'd supposed be, to be. That'd be orange carpet up in Stillwater, right? That's true. Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> Get hammered on that deal. Yeah, you were. <laughs> But we did all that. We went uh, to his house. Uh, Michelle was probably only like two years old. You know, Robbie, she made some great chocolate uh, pie that uh, we still eat every once in a while. And, and I always tell Coach Holder that's 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 the only reason I went up there because of that. Well, but I'll just tell pie. you that when I got there in 97, we had a, a, an official visit and we were over at the house and Robbie said, OK, I got recruiter pie here. And it was that same pie. <laughs> they call it a recruiter pie. That is, it is. And it's, it's fabulous, still fabulous. But uh, it was just a, when I left there and even before I left there, I knew that was the spot for me just because the family atmosphere um, just seemed um, like it was where I was supposed to be. And the school being a big part of the town. I mean, you, you get in Austin, the school's engulfed by, you know, so much other stuff. Houston's a huge city. And it just it just felt right. And, uh, you know, with Tom being there, that helped because, like Coach Holder said, you know, if you'll come here, we'll win national championships. And I just believed with Tom being as good as he was. And I didn't know Jamie, you know, much uh, then. I knew he was a good player and everything. Uh, but I thought, you know, with us two and some other guys, we're going to win national championships. And that's, that's what it's all about. That's what I want to do. Well, and that is what happened. We're going to talk about that in a second. You just mentioned Jamie, Jamie Gonzalez from Brazil. 
and Mike played in the Brazilian Open in 1974, and I think that's where he discovered Jamie. So I think, and I don't know if I have that story correct, but could you tell me a story about Jamie getting to campus for the first time? Because I think that needs to be told. Well, now, he got there the year before I did, okay. but uh, they were still talking about this. So, and I, I can't imagine doing this, but uh, Jamie decides to come to Oklahoma State. He lives in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Now, he, he's done a lot of traveling. He traveled a lot in Europe and played amateur golf over there, junior golf with Seve and got to know Seve and everything. And so, you know, he's okay on the travel part, but he picks up and he's going to Stillwater, Oklahoma from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil to play golf. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't even know how long it, took him to get there that first flight which would have been let's see i started to fall of 74 so this would have been the fall of 73 1973 so i guess he goes miami maybe dallas to oklahoma city so he gets there i don't even know you know if that takes a day or you know depending on the flights and and all of that so he gets there and he gets his bags and everything because he's used to the travel. So he goes outside and, and there's a taxi. So he says, uh, can I get a taxi to Stillwater? <laughs> I mean, he's got no idea where it is. What is it? 60 miles or something? Yeah. It's 70 miles almost. So, so he gets there, gets, it's a taxi and everything shows up, you know, he hadn't shaved in three or four days or something. And they Tom and those guys were, were just cracking up because he got out and of the taxi at the course because he went straight to the course and they were out there. And uh, then he didn't know what to do because down in Rio, he'd always had caddies. So he got all his stuff unpacked, got his clubs, and he asked Tom and them where the caddies were. And they <laughs> said, there's no caddies here. And so, so now he's got this staff bag. And he's got to carry it. He doesn't even know how to carry a bag. You know, usually you'll you'll carry your bag kind of horizontal to the ground. And and uh, Jamie started out with the handle of the bag, just carrying it with one hand, and then uh, and then finally used the strap. But he had the the bag vertical to the ground, so it had to be so heavy. But it's it's really a testament to him. And I wasn't there that first year, but I know that first year had to be hard for him. And to uh, to hang in there for four years, basically, and, and you know, continue to improve and things like that. It's it's and he is a great, great guy. And he he was probably the best ball hitter that we had. And yeah, I can uh, remember really being in high school, coming down to Stillwater Country Club and watching him hit a driver into the on the fifth hole into a 30 mile an hour wind. And it never got above 10 feet off the ground. And he was 50 by the other guys in the group because they were hitting these balloons up there into the wind. Yeah, it was really a knuckleball, almost like, you know, what the balls would do today, but on a lower flight back then. But uh, it, it was impressive. Uh, he always had a lot of funny stories because he was just – he was outgoing. I mean, people loved him, and he would talk and talk. And, and it was just – you know, it was, it was great to be with him and around him. Um, but he did a lot of traveling with, with Seve over in Europe. Uh, so we had, you know, he brought all these Pringle sweaters back with him, cashmere. I bet he had eight or 10 of them. And uh, I mean, I bet they were two or $300 back then each. And 
So at Iba Hall, they had the uh, laundry, the washers and dryers down in the basement. So uh, somebody said, are you going to wash those sweaters? So he said, yeah, I do need to wash them. I've been wearing them a little bit. So he went down there, put them in the washing machine and dried them. Oh, no. <laughs> and they came out the size of, of like a doll would wear. I mean, it was like <laughs> six inches tall or something. And every one of them obviously were ruined. And, I, and I, I can't give him too much grief because I went down there one time and was doing laundry. And uh, my roommate, Steve Talbot from Snyder said, here, try some of this. And it was Clorox. He said, this stuff will get it a lot cleaner. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I had no idea. I had all kinds of colors in there. So I just poured a bunch of this stuff in and, uh, you know, it came out with white spots and, you know, the shirts had big white spots. Actually, as a fashion play, I should have known that, uh, that was gonna, <laughs> exactly that was what the deal was going to be. But I ruined all those clothes. Wow. Well, you know, Jamie Gonzalez is somebody, the modern day kids or even modern day people that know about golf wouldn't know about him. Great, great memory there. I love that. You played with on two national championship teams, 1976, 1978. Uh, you were low amateur in the Masters and the U.S. Open, I believe. Right. You were on the Walker Cup team. It's obvious you were the Fred Haskins Award winner. Your time at Oklahoma State was filled with pretty much nothing but success, but and so we'll talk a little bit about that, but also we'll talk about your teammates because you had several teammates that went on to play. were all All-Americans and went on to play the PGA Tour. David Edwards, Bob Tway, Jim Woodward, Tom Siegman, Jamie Gonzalez, Britt Harrison, all those guys played professional golf, and I'm probably missing a couple. But let's talk about, if we could, uh, David Edwards because David, uh, he's actually a good friend of mine. I've, I've known David since – you know, he was a junior golfer in Oklahoma and he wasn't really a highly touted junior player. He made himself into a player. And before you talk about him, I want to tell one story. David was playing the PJ tour when I first got there at Oklahoma state and he was trying out three woods one day and he had three different three woods and I was watching him hit them. And you know how straight David hit the golf ball. And so he's hit about 40 of them, about 10 or 15 with each one of them. And we're going out to pick up those balls. And one of the players came over and the pile was so small. The player thought he, he was picking up a, a pile of wedges he had just hit. Now, am I exaggerating or would that be the truth? Because that was the straightest three woods I'd ever seen in my life. No, that's the truth. It's, it's amazing, you know, how, how straight he hit it and, and how consistent it was. And, you know, when he came to OSU, you know, like you say, he wasn't highly touted, but – he continued to improve uh, each year, and we were kind of on different ends of the spectrum. I mean, we've we've done so much traveling together. We traveled, and uh, when we played the tour, we got on the tour the same year. We stayed together at the tour school, trying to get on that first year, and and the stress and strain that you know all of that. And we're totally different. I'm I'm more of a feel. I I just soon not practice and play but he loved to practice. And mm -hmm. when he was at school, he honed, it's, it's almost like a Ben Hogan. I, I think he experimented with a lot of different things and then he found the right thing. And it was, it was really, really uh, incredible. And on the tour, he would have been leading driving accuracy if it had not been for Calvin Pete. 
I mean, you know, mm-hmm. Calvin Pete hit it straighter, but he would just edge David out every year. And uh, but how consistent he was with a swing that I think he did own and that he did, you know, figure out what worked best for him and in a consistent manner. And he enjoyed doing that too. He enjoyed tinkering and he enjoyed that. I'm kind of the other way. I just soon go play. And now I've, you know, back then I had to practice some because if I wasn't playing good, I needed to do something different. But, uh, you know, we, we were so different in that, that respect, but he just continued to get better. You know, he was on the, the first uh, national championship team when we wanted Albuquerque. And then the next year, I think he finished maybe top five individually. And then he won when we won at uh, Eugene. And then he got right on the tour and just, you know, continued to, to keep getting better. And what's really impressive, and it's because of the ball hitting, I believe, the places he won on tour. Mm-hmm. Riviera, Riviera's won. Muirfield Village, the Memorial. Um, he won at Hilton, Hilton head. I mean, those Hilton head, I mean, if you don't hit it straight, you can go ahead and just keep playing because there's trees everywhere and, and little bitty greens and it was right up his alley. But, uh, it was, it was really neat to see, you know, how he continued to improve and what he did, you know, ultimately to, uh, on the tour and champions tour when he played there and won one, one time there as well. Yeah. I think it's kind of hard for kids or young players to relate today to a guy like David Edwards, who did win four times in the tour, but they don't even relate to it. And David's never hit a tee ball as far as any of the 10 guys I've got on my team right now, but it was a nice way. I've always believed that we all have talent. We all have talent. Everybody has talent, but certain people develop their talents more. So you know, I, I look at David and I, I would use the old term I used with a player here at Baylor named Kyle Jones, who's on the Corn Ferry Tour right now. But, you know, some people have been given a lot. David did a lot with what he'd been given. Yep. And it's just kind of amazing how great a player he became. And he was not even the best player at Oklahoma State because there were several of you that were better than he was. But he won that NCAA his senior year. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to know how you got the nickname Log, L-O-G. And I've think this might speak to your personality a little bit. I don't know, but I mean, you're the best player in college golf and they called you log. That's not a very nice title. Oh, that's a good one though. That's that <laughs> one stuck that, uh, my freshman year, I, I roomed with a guy named Larry sock, uh, that uh, was from Nebraska. He was a sophomore. And I think coach Holder thought, you know, he, Larry was very laid back. I was laid back. He thought it'd be, you know, a kind of a good mix to live there in Iba. And uh, that first semester, I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. And like the first week of school, I, I go back and, and I played in the amateur. Actually, David and I both played in the amateur. And uh, so we missed the whole first week of school. And I had never been to the campus other than that one visit. So, I mean, I didn't even know anything. And I was there a week late. And it was like, we've got to qualify this day and, and I'm going to the Seratine center for a, uh, for a class. that has got like 600 people in it. And I mean, I am lost. And, uh, so sometimes I'll just kind of lay down and, 
whether it's a stress reliever or not, and they just start sleeping. And I slept <laughs> a lot that, uh, that uh, first semester. And Larry Sock just came in one day, and I think there were some other guys in the room. The, do- the dorm experience was so great, that athletic dorm living there with all the guys. I mean, it was, it was fabulous. But I think some of those guys were in there, and, and Larry just said, you're like a log. And, uh, so it just stuck and it was L O G from, from there till now. And, uh, and I did some things to kind of help along along with that, that all college, it was always slow down there at Lincoln park. And, and I think I was leading the tournament and about the 16th hole of the last round, there were like, or 15, I can't remember which one, but there were like four groups on the tee. So I just laid down and went to sleep. And uh, because it was going to be 30 minutes or so, and I just put my head on my bag and a, a reporter got a picture. And, and the bad thing about it was every time a group hit, it woke me up because of the <laughs> strike of the ball. And then I'd have to go back to sleep for eight or 10 minutes. But, you know, that kind of added to that lore too. But it, it was, and I don't know, I just, I can just sit, if I sit still, not so much today, but, Actually, still got a little bit of it today where if you just sit still and get quiet, you can kind of go to sleep. It's kind of a nice deal. Well, uh, you played uh, a couple of years on the team, three years, I believe, with Bob Tway, uh, who went on to win eight or nine times on the tour in a major championship. Uh, he had a nickname, Brillo. Um, obviously, that was because of that hair that he had, Brillo pad for a head. But tell me about Bob. He was one of the hardest working guys I ever remember. Yeah, you know, he was just there as a freshman, but, you know, obviously I was around him a lot after that. But when he came in, you know, he worked hard and, and uh, you know, it was me and David and uh, Britt Harrison were kind of the top three spots because we had graduated uh, Jamie and Tom and Brillo and Raphael got those other two spots. And, Brillo came in uh, and played good. I mean, it, it's hard for a freshman to, you know, really play consistent. But we knew we had a good one, obviously, with both of those guys. But uh, we could tell from how they could play that uh, that they were going to help us and, and they were just going to continue to get better and, and hone their games to, to, you know, basically be a tour player one day, both of them. Yeah, and and actually Bob ended up being the Fred Haskins Award winner three years after you were in 1981, his senior year. Um, so that brings me to another story. In, in August 1st of 2007, I get a phone call from Lindy Miller. And I think you remember this phone call. And, and basically it was about Michael, your son, Michael. And Kevin, Bob Tway's son, Kevin, was already set to come to school in about three weeks. But but Michael wasn't set to come to school. And I remember right. this phone call like it was yesterday. And I'm thankful that you called that day. Tell me about that. Well, I'm thankful you took it and, and uh, it worked out the way it was supposed to, but uh, boys last is obviously last minute because it was only a couple of weeks before school was start, but uh, we thought he was going to go to Arkansas and he had really played good his last couple of years in high school. And, uh, won the region one year uh, for Alito here in, in Texas. And then uh, they beat Highland Park uh, in the state championship. And he finished maybe top five in, 
in the state. And, you know, he really played good. We thought he was going to go to Arkansas and it didn't work out last minute. And uh, I called you and, and said, you know, is there a place for him? And Michael was sitting there with me when I was talking to you. And uh, thankfully, you guys said, yeah, and we'd love to have him. And I really think I know that's where he was supposed to be. And I really think he wanted to be there even before the Arkansas deal. But it just it just seemed like a, a, a big ask, basically. And it really wasn't. I, I should have thought about it even before then. But uh, it was where he was supposed to be. And with Ricky coming in, with Kevin being there, uh, he was – I know he was so happy to be a part of that team and uh, be a part of that program. And he admires you, respects you, and uh, Coach Holder as well. And just it, – it, it turned out so good. And, and uh, you know, I'm, it was, allowed me to, to spend a lot more time up there and with him. And, and just so many good things came of that. But it really was something that, that uh, he loved and enjoyed and really made a difference, I, I believe, positive difference in his life. Well, I, I believe the same, and I'm thankful you called. And by the way, I didn't hesitate. Not, and, and to this day, I didn't even know until you just told me that Michael was on the, was listening in on the phone conversation. I thought it was just you. I didn't even know that. But I didn't hesitate one second. I thought if probably the best player to ever play in college for Oklahoma State wants to request that his son come here, and, and Michael was a good player. By the way, you, you failed to mention he played in the U.S. Junior as well. Right. Uh, so it's not like he didn't have a good little career. He was playing fine. And Michael was an amazing, amazing addition to the team. Uh, yeah, it wasn't so much on the in the competitive because he didn't play on the varsity much, but it was the way he held those guys together. If you think about it, we had Ricky Fowler, Kevin Tway, Morgan Hoffman, Peter Uline in his time there, uh, and Taylor Gooch who ended up playing the tour. Um that's a lot of personalities and strong personalities and big egos and just strong guys to come in. And Michael had the most amazing way of melting all that together. He was like glue and everybody just felt. And so, and he worked just as hard as anybody practice, played, trained, went to workouts. Michael did everything anybody else did. And, and honestly, I, I look back on it and think that's one of the best decisions I've ever made. Well, that's great to hear. I, I know he's a great young man. Yeah, he really is, and he's a great father too. I mean, he's got you've got two grandkids. Yes, right yeah, absolutely. He's got uh, Layton that's four. Uh, he and his wife Brianna got Layton that's four, and then Maddox that's uh, one. So we've got a couple of grandkids there, and then Matthew, my oldest, uh, yeah. has uh, he and Whitney have got uh, one little boy that's two, Evan. So, you know, Michael's already talking about Maddox coming up there and playing, and and uh, Matthew's already talking about Evan coming up there and playing. So it'll be interesting to see. Well, that's great. Well, you know, um, that the history that you've had for me have both been interesting with Ben Hogan, with Oklahoma State, and then I get to coach your son. It's pretty amazing. And But I'm going to ask a question. The Ben Hogan Foundation. I don't know that that many people know about it. I would like to – I'd like for you to talk about the Ben Hogan Foundation because I know you're a big part of that. Well, it, it's just something that was – that was uh, started to uh, to further his legacy. And, and, you know, a lot of people think 
think of him as, you know, obviously a great player and things like that, but he had so many other things that uh, he loved and he respected and, you know, the military and, and just hard work ethic and, and, uh, and golf and, and the, you know, the golf and, and what it meant to him and his life. And I think there's an interview with Ken Venturi of saying, you know, I just want to give back to, uh, to what golf has given me. And that's kind of what we've done with the Ben Hogan Foundation uh, of just preserving that legacy. And we do a, a, a big deal at Fort Hood for the soldiers each year. Uh, great, great thing. The soldiers love it. Go down there and put on a golf tournament for them and, and just make them king for a day because of, you know, everything, obviously, that they do for us. And uh, we've really gotten involved with the first tee of uh, Fort Worth, but other first tees as well. And, and there's now two Ben Hogan Learning Centers, one at uh, Rockwood here in Fort Worth and then one at uh, Squaw Creek, which is just west of here between here and Weatherford. And it's just a learning center that uh, the first tee kids uh, can go to and have classrooms and, and then they do their programming out of there. And just in Fort Worth, the first tee here has grown. It's got 30,000 kids, something like that. First tee, Squall Creek's probably got 2,000. And uh, it just continues to get his name out there. You know, as well as I do, the longer things, you know, go, people kind of start forgetting. And, mm -hmm. you know, things like that, we may end up in, you know, another city, you know, maybe – maybe in Colorado, maybe in uh, Michigan, around Oakland Hills. I mean, there's always discussions about that, but uh, it's been great to have those learning centers. You know, the kids continue to, to learn about, he had a tough life coming up. And these first T kids, a lot of them have the same thing. And it's, it's great for them to, to, to go in a place that's named after him to where they can see what he went through and what he did to uh, succeed. First tee is a great deal. I mean, the golf part, you know, that's, that's great, but what they're learning with the life lessons, it's just amazing to see these kids. And, and I always tell people I can go to a, and it may not be an AJGAA event because you may not have a bunch of first tee kids in that, but I can go to an event, in uh, a town and I can look at 80 kids for probably 10 minutes and I can tell you which ones have been through the first tee just by the the way they carry themselves and it's it's just been fantastic and, and the Ben Hogan Foundation has done a lot of that they've done a lot of scholarships for uh, for people that have pers persevered through injuries and and I've read some of these I mean, these these kids have been, you know, ACL twice, you know, down for a year, year and a half, and you know, whether it be football or you know whatever, and they come back and and they just continue to come back, and it's you know, it's it's so wonderful to hear those stories, and and uh, so we do, we continue to do a lot of scholarships and and things like that, so. Uh, it's been great. You know, I'm not quite as involved. We do a tournament in the, uh, in the fall and I am involved a lot in that. We do that at Shady Oaks, but, uh, 
uh, it's been great to be associated with them and, and, uh, you know, Robert Stennett, who is our executive director the whole time has, has done a great job too. So it's, it's been fabulous. I know Mr. Hogan, if he were still alive, would, would love the initiatives that the Ben Hogan foundation has done. Uh, not just the fact that it's carried on his legacy, but just the, the values and the things you, you're trying to teach these young people. So I think that's fantastic. So before we finish up, I'm going to ask you one question. So you were, this, this actually relates to what we talked about earlier. You were a pretty average 13 year old golfer. Right. So what would you say to a 13 year old, if you had one or two bits of advice that the, and that we've kind of hit on a little bit of this before, but what would your best piece of advice for a 13 year old be who wants to play college golf and beyond you were an all American and you played the PGA tour. What would you love to have heard that, you know, now at age 13? Boy, that's a good one. You know, I'd say for anybody starting out, I mean, chip and putt, mm. learn how to chip and putt and to have a short game that I see so many kids because the equipment and everything and how far it goes, you know, just try to hit it a long way. And you, you can't hardly play without chipping and putting and, and, and having a short game. And, and I'm talking about it at a, at a high level. But uh, just think about it as a marathon and not a race. It, it's not going to happen overnight. Everybody's going to be on a little bit different timetable continue to improve, continue to work on things that'll, that'll make you better over time and, and don't think it's got to happen overnight and love what you're doing. I mean, if, if I didn't love what I was doing back then, I wouldn't have turned into the player that I did and love what you're doing. And, and that's another thing that just really impressed me about Victor Hovland he loves to play. I mean, he may be playing in Stillwater today after, you know, the players last week, he may be playing with the guys up there and, and just love what you're doing because that makes a huge difference. Now that's hard to say, how do you do that? How do you love something? Well, it just, a lot of it just kind of comes naturally, but love the process of, of improving and you'll get better. And, and love being out there and love the competition. And a lot of that is, I think, you're born with, but the work ethic, I think, and the, and the, the desire to improve your game each and every day, you know, you, you can work on that. And I think that's a big part of it. Really good advice. You um, that you've given, that was about four or five things, which was great. And one of the things you said in there was the, the patience, it's not going to happen overnight. My assistant, Mikkel, gave me a quote. It was from a runner here recently that I really loved, and I wrote this down. It says, we live in a microwave wor world while the, the game of running is a turkey bake-off. <laughs> but, but the truth is, right. everybody wants it now, and sometimes sure. it takes a little longer to, to actually happen in golf. So you... You got good pretty quick, but you weren't good when you started. So right. that, that's important. That's great advice that you give to young players. So, well, Lindy, thank you so much for spending time today. I love these stories. They were great. And uh, you're still one of my all-time favorite amateur golfers that I've ever seen. So uh, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything you all do, too.